Hi friends, and welcome to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. This is your host, Ashley Stahl. I'm a counterterrorism professional turned career coach, Forbes blogger, speaker, and now author of my own career book that has just released for pre-order on Amazon. You can probably guess the name as it's also called U-Turn, spelled Y-O-U-T-U-R-N. This book is all about getting unstuck, discovering your direction, and designing your dream career. I created the U-Turn podcast and wrote the U-Turn book with this goal of helping you reconnect to who you truly are and upgrading your confidence in work and in love. So if you're looking to get even more clarity beyond the podcast and even the book on where you belong in the workforce or you wanna make a career pivot or just explore your purpose overall, we have a brand new free quiz to help you out with that. Just head on over to ashleystahl.com if you wanna take it. It's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L.com for the free quiz. Also, I'm really excited to finally let you know that this episode has been brought to you by Organifi. I have fallen so in love with their smoothie protein, their chocolate, their vanilla, and also their green juice drink. I have both of these products every single day. And after years of declining and dodging sponsorship, because I didn't want to feel sticky promoting something to you, I decided that their products were so good, so transformative for my health and my morning routine that I reached out to them and asked if they wanted to sponsor the U-Turn show. So if you are inspired to upgrade your health during these uncertain times and you want products to add into your routine throughout the day, I just can't recommend them enough. I was able to get you a discount code for 15% off when you check out. All you gotta do is head on over to Organifi.com backslash U-Turn. It's spelled Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com backslash Y-O-U, T-U-R-N. Make sure you enter the code U-Turn at checkout on their website. And now let's dive in to this week's episode. For a partnership to have a chance at success, there needs to be a combination of chemistry, of compatibility, and timing. And so I think if you have zero chemistry, don't go there because you need some degree of chemistry, but give people a chance because your brain might not have processed it yet as romantic chemistry. But then it's important to look at the compatibility and look at the values. U-Turn friends, this week in the love category, I am bringing you Amy Chan. She's the founder of Renew Breakup Bootcamp and the relationship magazine, Just My Type, with more than a quarter million views every single month. She's known as a chief heart hacker, and she blogs for the Huffington Post, the Vancouver Sun. She's been featured in Fashion Magazine, the Georgia Strait, and so many other publications. And she was recently shortlisted for the YMCA Women of Distinction Award, um, running her private coaching business in New York City. I'm sure she sees clients all over the world. And she now has her book coming out called Breakup Bootcamp, The Science of Rewiring Your Heart. And God knows we could all use that. And that's why I wanted to talk to her about why we seem to be so attracted to relationships that hurt so much and what's really going on behind that. So Amy, thank you so much for coming onto the show. Thanks for having me, Ashley. It's my pleasure. I feel like you know, in the COVID era right now, I feel like so many people are sitting at home and these like weird lingering love life feelings will come up. Like if they're single, they're thinking of like that phantom ex, or maybe they're in a relationship and they're remembering somebody from the past. I just think sitting at home is bringing up a lot. I'm curious what you think that's even about. Yeah. So I love to first even address what's happening right now in this pandemic is the stress levels are high. There's been uh, research that's actually showing that women are losing their hair more than normal this year. And so there's a lot of stress and cortisol, whether we're cognitively aware of it or not. And a very natural response is when we feel stressed or when we feel overwhelmed, we have a natural tendency to crave connection. And that's when we may want to do uh, contact comfort. And so there's the wanting and desire to reach out to someone that you've had a past with. And that's what I'm dealing with a lot right now are 
people who after the breakup, maybe months have gone by even like years and they're getting the sudden desire to contact their ex. So it is a very natural thing. And I just want to put that out there. You're not going crazy. And I'd love to, yeah, address why are we drawn to people who we had unhealthy relationships with or who were toxic for us or who just weren't the right fit. And Sometimes you might think, oh, it's because my ex was so amazing. I can't find anyone else like them. But if you dig down a little bit deeper, often we'll find out that it's actually not because your ex was so amazing. And there's some psychological tendencies that come into play. So Ashley, do you want me to kind of go through some of the key reasons why we get addicted to our exes? Yeah, I would love that. (laughs) Everybody, like the one who got away, I feel like that's got to be such a haunting experience for people. I would love to hear how to get out of that. Yeah. So there's a few things. So one is there's something called intermittent reinforcement. So this is really important to understand. They've done studies with rats where they put rats in cages and there was a lever. And every time the rat pressed the lever, they would get a pellet of food. The the rat learns, okay, I press this thing. I get some food. That's consistent reinforcement. No big deal. Then the experimenters decided like, let's see what happens when we sometimes give food and sometimes don't. And so what they noticed was the rat ends up getting completely obsessed with pressing the lever because it doesn't know when the rewards are going to come and when it's they're going to get that hit of dopamine. So they found that the rats would start to disintegrate because they're obsessively pressing the lever and sometimes they get that hit, sometimes they don't. It's the same way of how slot machines are designed. Intermittent reinforcement gets us hooked. So if you have an ex who maybe once in a while reaches out or maybe during COVID was like, hey, you doing all right? That little (laughs) hit is that little pellet of food. And then you might go, you know what? I'm I'm curious what uh, good old Johnny's doing these days. Let me just check their the Instagram. I'll use my Finsta and just check them out. And you see them living their best life, you know, and having wine during quarantine. And then you're getting another hit of that dopamine. That's intermittent reinforcement, even though they're not reaching out to you. So it's something to keep in mind if you are you know, starving on breadcrumbs from someone who is from, from your past or someone you've dated on and off again, understand that the intermittent reinforcement is probably getting you addicted to the person. So that's one. (laughs) Okay. This is amazing because, okay. So I went on a business trip to Israel like a year and a half ago. And there was a guy I was seeing before I met my partner and he was a total breadcrumber towards me. So I have plenty of questions on like, why does the breadcrumber give the breadcrumbs and why does the rat get so into eating them? Like, so I have questions about both sides of the fence, but one blessing I had on that trip was that there's this guy named Todd who, um, I was asking him questions about this guy's text messages. And he said to me, he's like, Oh, he's like me. He's not emotionally available. I'm like, I love that. You know, you're not emotionally available. And I remember asking him is the breadcrumb for me just because there's like, would he do this with anybody, no matter how amazing they are? Or is it just because he's not that into me? He's like, Oh no, no, no. I've had really amazing women that are probably marriage material, but I'm going to do this to them too. Like, this is so cruel. It's so painful. And he had a lot of awareness obviously around his habits, but he kind of helped me break through and like understand from the horse's mouth, what's going on on that side of the fence a little bit more. But what do you think it is that keeps them doing that? And what do you think it is on the other side that keeps people kind of like, Oh, cool. Let me see how Johnny's doing. And let me hit Graham. Yeah. First off, shout out to Todd. (laughs) Thanks for the perspective. Uh, there's, there's a few things. So someone who is breadcrumbing, I don't necessarily think that this is due to evil intent, right? There are people, especially people who exhibit characteristics of narcissistic personality disorder, who can understand intermittent reinforcement and use that as a tool of manipulation. And then I think there's like most of the population, they're not set out to get you. And I know even myself, I have done this without even knowing it to other people. It's what we would just put 
these little tethers, right? We're not fully that interested, whether it's because we don't think that there's a fit, whether the chemistry is not that strong, or it's just a certain time in our life. And, but, you know, we're still kind of wanting entertainment or sometimes we get bored or we do like spending time with the person and talking to the person. And so they might not even be aware that you're, you have feelings for this person and that every time you do that little reach out that it's causing this reaction where someone's in a total tizzy. And so I think that, you know, part of how we can avoid this breadcrumbing thing from going back and forth is having a frank conversation about it. And I know I've had to do that with people who uh, like me a little, but not enough. Mm-hmm. And they weren't doing anything bad and they were engaging in me with me and I was engaging back. So it seemed like an even, you know, exchange, but my feelings were skyrocketing. And of course I never communicated this. Mm-hmm. So I think communicating and being like, Hey, so this is where I'm at. This is what's confusing. Like, where are you at? And getting some clarity around that could be really helpful. Mm, This is really great. Okay. And I know anybody listening who's on the side of the fence where they're eating the little breadcrumb snack, they're like, I'm scared to tell the person where I stand. I don't want to lose them. Maybe if I, they operate on the belief that maybe if they wait a little longer and tell them later that other person will be more hooked into them too and willing to hear it versus if they say it too soon. Like, isn't there such a thing when you're dating, like where it's too soon or even in your relationship where maybe it's too soon to make that request or let them know where you're at? I think that there's different dating strategies. So definitely like in my twenties, there was a lot of game playing and you want to really position yourself as this aloof, unavailable person and you are the prize. And I think it's, things start to shift when you get into a mindset of partnership. And I know that as I became more emotionally healthy, I had a different standard of what was acceptable in partners. And so, uh, and we can go about attachment theory, but like, I have a formerly anxious attachment style, meaning I was born with it by the age of around two years old. I developed attachment system that was filled with anxiety, with a fear of being abandoned or rejected, which followed me along into my twenties and thirties. And so back then when I was super anxious, I would be drawn to the avoidant because avoidance are drawn to anxious and avoidance push people away. And they do this in a subconscious way. They don't know that They are trying to cut off intimacy when someone gets too close. And like I was operating on a lot of unhealed wounds. And as I became healthier, as I became more secure, meaning I was comfortable with intimacy, but not codependent, my tolerance for behavior that was on again, off again, unavailability just became lower, lower and lower. And, um, and then I eventually met my partner. Mm. Hmm, I love this. And I, I think also, you know, talking a little bit more about these different intimacy styles, you were talking to me before we started recording about how different people will handle the phantom X. So you had mentioned that the avoidant person will maybe idealize their X and that's what kind of keeps them attached to them versus maybe an anxious person who will take the breakup really hard. Can you elaborate a little bit on that for anybody? Because I know whoever's listening right now, there's many people that have the one that got away, even if they're married, even if they're dating somebody new, that's really amazing. And so I, I want to be helpful with them really getting to the root of like, why are they still holding on to this random person that they broke up with four years ago? Yeah, it's quite the question. So, um, People who have a a secure attachment style, um, for those who don't know much about attachment theory, that's about 50% of the population. They're not afraid of intimacy. They're also not codependent. Now, about 20% of the population is in the avoidant attachment style, meaning they subconsciously suppress their attachment system. So as soon as someone gets a little too close emotionally, they push them away, doing things called deactivating strategies. And then the third is anxiously attached. Those are people who subconsciously fear abandonment or rejection, they have a tendency to kind of create their entire world and identity and sense of self-worth based on their partner's validation. Mm -hmm. Now, anxious are drawn to avoidance and vice versa. And the way that anxious people um, handle breakups is really, really hard. Out of all the the groups, they take it the hardest because they make it something totally personal about themselves. And um, they might go into an obsessive spiral about the person and... Avoidance, on the other hand, they uh, 
part of their way of avoiding intimacy is by creating this idea of the phantom X. So um, the phantom X is either a partner in the past that they ideal, they completely put on a pedestal and they idolize them and they think they're the most amazing thing, even though in the relationship, they probably didn't see them that way. Um, but they kind of have selective memory and they put them on a pedestal and that allows them to not get close to other people. They might even project into the future and create this universe unicorn fantasy because what happens is they might date someone first three months are amazing and then they start to pick at all the imperfections at their partner and say you know i just haven't met the one yet and so th that is when the whole phantom x might come into play it's actually a way of avoiding closeness and intimacy hmm. now something also that's really interesting here is whether you're whatever category of attachment style you are is there something um uh, called the peak end uh, theory. Have you ever heard of that? No, I'm so curious. Tell okay. me. Okay, so this is fascinating. Uh, it works a lot in, people talk a lot about peak end theory in marketing experiences and whatnot. And this is a tendency for people to remember emotional peaks and the ends because uh, we can't actually remember everything. So we have selective memory. So take this scenario. Say you meet someone, you have a whirlwind romance, right? Maybe you met them in Tulum and it was magical. You were stress-free and everything's amazing. And then say you go back to your respective cities and maybe the person ghosts you, right? Mm -hmm. There's an abrupt end. And then months later, you might even find yourself dating someone who's secure and stable, but you keep remembering this person and like this incredible time under the palm trees, drinking coconut tequila shots. <laughs> And you remember the peak moments. And so, especially because we have a tendency to equate love with intensity due to how we're socialized and the messages that we're fed through the media and fairy tales and love songs, is we remember the intensity of that experience. And then we, six months, a year later, when we're in something stable, we go, oh, wait, what? you know, that like sex on the beach with that person was so amazing. And you remember the intensity and you're like, well, maybe I just love that person more, mm -hmm. but it's really a confusion of the intensity with love. Mm -hmm. I love this uh, distinction. And I think it's, it's such a big deal. And I'm hoping that people are really hearing you as you're sharing that kind of, but is there an intelligence to the longing that some people have? Because I'm guessing that even if there's some sort of deflection of intimacy and people are in their relationship and things are getting a little rocky or the growth edges are coming, they start to kind of nostalgically reflect on that, that distant X. Is there also some intelligence to like, Oh, you know, th there's something from the past that you want to bring into the present now. Like, how do you draw that line? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, I work with people who are getting over heartbreak and breakups. Uh, and what I have found time and time again is sometimes holding on to the past, whether it's the pain from the past, whether it's blaming the ex of the past or the nostalgia of the past is our last way of holding on to the relationship. Mm -hmm. And this is done on a very subconscious level. And I, I believe in those cases closure hasn't been actualized yet. And mm -hmm. when I say closure, it doesn't mean that there was this final conversation and two people apologized and, you know, everything's great. Closure is something that you can only give yourself. And there's no amount of apologies from the other person or even explanations that's really going to give you that sense of peace in your heart. And I believe closure happens in many different ways. Like there is a closure of cognitively when you're, you're like, okay, this relationship's over. I'm going to move forward. You take the steps too. But then sometimes our bodies just still crave that person, our, mm -hmm. our spirit, our soul. And so I think that part of what we do at Renew Breakup Bootcamp is we actually do a ritual where there is a ceremony of letting go. Um, whereas whether it's the cutting of the cord or energetically releasing the person so you can truly make space for someone else or for another relationship 
to thrive. And so, you know, there's so many cultures that have these rituals that mark the ending of something and the beginning of something else. And I feel like that's really lost in North America. And so that might be an area you might want to try. If you've done all the therapy, you know, cognitively that X wasn't your right fit. Um, maybe there needs to be some sort of a ritual or ceremony where you truly honor that past relationship for what it was and you let it go. And mm -hmm. another part of closure is it is it, it is a combination of compassion, acceptance, and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And people always say, you've got to forgive. And I, I'm sure, but like, how the hell do you do that? Right. And I think it starts with having compassion for yourself and doing self-compassion exercises, which will automatically create compassion for the other person, which will automatically lead to acceptance, which will automatically eventually lead to forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to kind of give respect to that cycle. Mm, I love this. Hey, U-Turners, so sorry for the quick interruption, but I wanna make sure you know from November 12th to November 19th, Organifi is doing a really fun promotion. You've heard me do this one before with them where they're offering their gold chocolate product and you get three canisters of it and a free frother so that you can make those delicious turmeric chocolate lattes in the afternoon when you're feeling that slump. You guys know that I am a really big sweet tooth and this is such a game changer. So if you go to Organifi.com slash U-Turn and you enter the U-Turn code when you check out, you'll get 15% off three chocolate golds and the free frother. It is packed with multivitamins, turmeric, and so much more. It is just a magical powder and I'm so excited to share it with you. Head on over to O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash Y-O-U-T-U-R-N and make sure you use that code at checkout. Thanks so much and back to the episode. I know that, you know, there's so much more work that we can all do on ourselves. Can you give us a deeper look at why is it that the brain hooks us into things that aren't good for us? Because I like to think that I'm pretty confident. And even so, I would say about three, four years ago, I dated a guy for eight months who... I mean, it's so unlike me because I feel like this podcast is kind of like has a spiritual undertone and I'm a spiritual person, but whatever that means. But I have to say, like, he was just not a good guy. Like, mm -hmm. And looking back, I, I, I think of myself and just think, dang, there are so many areas of my life where I was like transcending, mm -hmm. you know, my patterns and my negative whatevers. But this relationship really hooked me in and it wasn't good for me. So what do you think is going on when there's an otherwise really intelligent, confident person that gets hooked into a dating situation that's just so out there? Because I do hear people say you date at the level of your self-esteem and that kind of rocks me every time to hear it. There, so yeah, I'd like to, to unpack that a little bit more. I, I feel that we are drawn to people and people are drawn to us that mirror a similar emotional health level. Mm -hmm. And, and we draw in people who really help us become more conscious, right? They are mirrors to what's going on with us. Um, so in that way, every, every relationship is an opportunity for our own growth. But I'd like to kind of take it back a little to something called attractions of deprivation. Yeah. And this is when we are on a subconscious level drawn to people who can wound us in a very similar way to how we were wounded um, from our primary caregivers uh, uh, as we were children. So our psyche is subconsciously trying to recreate the scenario of the crime uh, in hopes to change its ending. So I know for myself, I, you know, I'm a... Um, professional. I've been successful in my career. I have great friends. However, I was in very toxic dating cycles my entire life. And it wasn't that I didn't have confidence or, you know, um, I wasn't a good person, but I had these patterns that I wasn't even aware of. Mm -hmm. And when you look back at 
at my upbringing, I came from, you know, my parents were immigrants. My father was never around. He was an entrepreneur, but he could walk in a room and light it up. And I was always 10th on the priority list. However, when I got good grades, I would get attention and he would give me money. And so I never realized that this would have anything to do with the romantic partners I would choose because my romantic partners looked very different. Mm. However, the emotional experience was very similar. The emotional experience that I kept repeating was I was always striving to get more love. I was trying to earn attention and love. I was trying to be useful in hopes that maybe I would finally get that love and change the ending to this open loop that was started in childhood. So sometimes we are drawn to people who you know, on a cognitive level, we, we see are unhealthy for us, but we seem to not be able to help it because it's a very subconscious thing. And this could be an attraction of deprivation. Mm, mm. This is so, I, I feel like, uh, I did an episode with Ken page. Um, for, oh, yes. for he's amazing. He's amazing. I feel like you guys would be friends. And he talked about like deprivation attractions and inspiration attractions. Mm. And I, I know that even if somebody hears this and sees this, it still can be really challenging to say, okay, I'm looking at John Doe over here. And I'm clearly in an attraction of deprivation. Like I feel like a starved desert waiting for some rain. Like, okay, I see it. And yet they can't help themselves where when Mr. Nice Guy walks by, they're like, "Mm, I don't want to be inspired by him. So what, what, what happens to kind of get us across the bridge? Yeah, great question, because it is completely unrealistic to get someone who's been in cycles of hot, hot, cold, cold relationships, toxic relationships, unavailable relationships to suddenly supportive, loving, and kind. Like it just, you don't go from zero to a hundred and to have that expectation um, is just going to set someone else, someone up for failure. So it happens in, in small degrees. Um, Human beings are drawn to what is familiar. And this is across the board, whether it's food or music or our preferences in romantic partners. So if you had growing up models of love that weren't healthy, maybe there was a codependent relationship with your parents or one wasn't around or there was divorce, whatever it was, you grow up subconsciously picking up all these kind of ideas and beliefs about what love looks like. And so that creates our chemistry compass. And so our chemistry compass is pointing us in which direction we should go. And so it's not that you yourself, if you are choosing people who are unhealthy, it's not that you are broken or that you're messed up. It's that your chemistry compass probably needs some tinkering. And the way that you start to fix it is you need to actually develop your familiarity with what healthy love and support feels like. Mm. And I did this, I did an experiment on myself because my chemistry compass was broken. It constantly pointed me in the direction of unavailable people where I was chasing them down for their love and their affection. And I knew I had a problem. And so I decided, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do an experiment. I am for the next six months, I'm going to be open to going out with people who appear to be healthy and who are intentionally wanting to date me. And I'm going to be open-minded. I'll give it two to three dates. And even the way that I was matching with people on dating apps, I was like a a swiping right or saying yes to people I normally would say no to. Mm -hmm. And I did this for about six, seven months. And I remember in the very beginning, there was this guy, his name was Chris. And I didn't I didn't feel any attraction to him. He was not my type. And I said to him, I wanted to be honest. I said, Hey, you know, I, I know that you're interested romantically, but to be honest, like I'm not feeling a romantic thing. If you want to hang out as buds, that's cool. But you know, that's where I'm at. And he's like, yeah, I just, I think you're awesome. I want to get to know you as a human being. Totally cool. So I would hang out with Chris off and on every so often, never thought of it. He was my homie. And after about seven months of this experiment, I was getting really defeated and disappointed because I'd gone out with different types of guys, amazing guys. And I was like, yeah, they're so boring. And like, they're nice, but I just don't like them. I feel no chemistry. And this one time I was having dinner with Chris, it was probably our seventh or eighth time spending time together. And I remember this key moment where I look across the table and I go, huh, you're handsome. And I realized that I was attracted to him. And so what happened was it took time for me to actually develop this attraction towards him because it wasn't just based on 
what it used to be. I got to know his character, his values, and I slowly started to develop this attraction, but I didn't know it was romantic attraction. My brain didn't process that as romantic attraction until way later. And my experiment actually worked because all those guys in between, what that was doing without me knowing was it was building my familiarity of, oh, this is what healthy feels like. Oh, this is how it feels like when someone's supportive. Oh, this is how it feels like when someone actually intentionally wants to date you. And I started to develop this familiarity. And as I mentioned, human beings like what is familiar. So you need to actually dose yourself with more supportive, healthier people until you get to a point where your chemistry compass starts to change. So powerful. And also I, I want to ask you a lot about attraction and chemistry, because I think you're touching on something that is just like a whole nother level is that I think people kind of go through all sorts of different things with attraction. Number one is when they're dating, are they attracted to somebody? But number two is when they're in a relationship a while and then the attraction kind of fades because you start to see that they're a real person who like poops and like mm-hmm. has digestive issues or whatever. <laughs> so I'm curious what your thoughts are on kind of like moving into that transition of connecting into who somebody really is as a person. And when the attraction kind of fades, what insights do you have about that just based on all the work you been doing? Yeah. So there's really great work from Helen Fisher, who studies romantic love and attraction. And there's basically three mating drives in the brain and all three come together to create love. And the first mating drive is attraction. And that is driven by testosterone. This is mother nature's way of having us mate with as many people as we possibly can. Um, the second, sorry, that the first, the first mating drive is lust. The second is attraction. And this is mother nature's way of having a zone in on one person to mate with. And this is driven by dopamine. So we have anticipation to see this person and it feels amazing when our affections are returned and feels awful when it's not. And then the third is bonding and attachment. And this is driven by uh, vasopressin and oxytocin. And oxytocin is that trust building chemical and vasopressin is actually the the attachment and bonding chemical it's also secreted when a mother gives birth or when she breastfeeds and so all three mating drives come together to create love i believe that in north america a lot of what we are fed of what love is is that it has to be lust and lust all the way or it's not love and it's a thing where we do equate intensity, right? The Romeo and Juliet uh, story with this is love, but that's just purely lust. And so I think it's important, number one, to know that love can be sparked by any of the mating drives. That's why you can be um, like myself. I was friends with Chris for seven months until I felt the spark of lust, right? That's Mm -hmm. why people who've been friends who have a bond for 10 years are best friends and suddenly realize that they are romantically interested in each other. It can be sparked by any of them. And it's also important to understand that the chemical cocktail that is there in the beginning, which is really to provide momentum for two people to come together, it eventually wears off because it's actually not humanly possible to keep up those elevated chemicals um, that's happening. Your amygdala, which is the one that processes fear and caution, starts to shut down. Um, You're filled with dopamine. All these things, it's not sustainable. And research shows that it's around eight months to two years where this starts to subside. And this is when people, if you think that love is intensity, you might freak out and say, oh my gosh, this isn't it. I want that intense Tulum experience with John, right? And so I think we need to really just create new definitions and expectations of what does love and partnership really mean and what does it look like and what does it feel like? Because the stuff we've been fed since we've been children watching movies is not it. Intensity is not love. And so And then when you are in a committed partnership, and yes, there's less mystery there, you feel like you know the person, there are ways of of sparking that passion again. And novelty does this, whether that's why traveling is really great, that's why role-playing can be really great, that's why playing, you know, 
games where you like have um this like discuss like what are your fantasies what's a yes what's a no what's a maybe and maybe putting those ideas into uh, a paper bag and every week you get one person takes a turn you pull it out like there's things you can do to create that sense of novelty to keep the spark alive I love what you're saying because I feel like there's 40 different people living inside of me and it's like all of us are complex beings with so many different facets and we seem to think we're just marrying one person when there's going to be like 25 versions of them, if not more throughout their life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as far as looking for someone who's a good mate or even people who are in relationships right now, reflecting on their relationship, are there a few key qualities that you found are the game changers or the deal breakers for relationships to actually last? Yeah, that's a great question. And it is something that I really try to teach the people that come through Breakup Bootcamp because a lot of the people I work with are slaves to chemistry and slaves to intensity and lust. And so because of that, they are on this roller coaster of emotions and chemistry that they completely forget the part that keeps a relationship and a partnership together, which is values and life vision. Mm -hmm. I believe that for a partnership to have a chance at, at success, there needs to be a combination of chemistry, of compatibility and timing. And so I think if you have zero chemistry, don't go there because you need some degree of chemistry, but give people a chance because your brain not might not have processed it yet as romantic chemistry, but then it's important to look at the compatibility and look at the values. And something that we go through as an exercise with the breakup bootcamp participants is I have them list their top 10 values of what they value in themselves. That's a really good starting point. And then rate yourself out of 10 in those values. And for example, I value adventure, but I myself, I'm probably a two out of 10 but I value it. I also value monogamy. I'm a 10 out of 10 in monogamy. And so then the next part of the exercise is you look at either the person you're dating, if you're questioning it, or the last three relationships that you've had, if you're single, and you rate those people out of 10 on all those values. And you look at the scores and that is going to give you a good sense of data of where are you at? Are you dating people who are totally off of your values and you're a slave to chemistry? Or, you know, is it going up, which shows a great improvement that you're, you're starting to choose partners that are a bit more compatible with you. I would, I would start there because I think that could actually save a lot of time and heartbreak. I know for me, there was this guy I dated who I met, I was drunk. I, you know, he saw me and he's like, I knew in 20 minutes, you're the one for me. Right. Like, and of course, back then I was like, I, I was totally had like low self-esteem and I was like, wow, someone's choosing me. Like I felt so special and I knew this person wasn't right for me. He was a like a total player known to be a player, a bachelor, hadn't been in a committed relationship forever. And, um, he didn't believe in monogamy and he's like, Hey, you know, I want to be honest. So if I occasionally, you know, have accidental sex with someone, you know, when I'm drunk, that shouldn't be the end of our relationship. And I'm like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't want to do that. I want a monogamous partnership. And so, you know, of course, what do you think I did? I stayed with him for four months. (laughs) (laughs) If I had this values checklist, I would have seen he was a zero out of 10 on monogamy. And that could have been a pretty big red flag to say, you know what, I don't need to invest four months into this. And I know how this is going to end. I don't have to go into this black hole. So I think that would be a good starting point. It's a little bit of a slippery slope though, because I think everybody like has, you know, their values, but some of them maybe count more than others in a relationship. Would you say like, like wanting to have kids or being super driven in your career or, I mean, there's just so many different factors. Are there certain values that you think, Hey, you need to look at these ones. These ones are a bigger deal than the others. Hmm. Let me see. I feel that there's certain values that are never that are not going to change, right? Like your your relationship preference, monogamy, polyamory, what that is. And and if that is something that you have a 10 out of 10 on, say monogamy and someone's not, 
then it's just, it's a, that's a deal breaker, right? I think that, um, children is another one, right? Like we can go in sometimes with these things that whether they're values or things that we want and feel like we really need in a partnership, such as wanting to have a family. And then we may, because we get so bamboozled by the chemistry that we start to edit our own values or rationalize them away and be like, you know, well, maybe it's okay that this isn't monogamous. Maybe I don't really want kids. And you try to, you, you kind of lie to yourself. And so, yeah, I think in addition to the values is like, what are those non-negotiables for you? And, and just sticking to them, no matter how much you feel you like someone, if they, I have a, like a hard boundary on, um, like hard drugs. If someone does cocaine or heroin or anything like that, it's a hard no for me. And so it doesn't matter how much I like the person that is on my hard no's list. Of course, this guy I'm talking about in the past, who didn't believe monogamy also did cocaine and all the drugs. And I didn't have this, this list back then, which would have been really helpful. So yeah, write that down and, um, hold yourself accountable to it. I guess one question that kind of comes up is that, you know, kind of going back to marriage and partnership, people, there's so many different versions that emerge of somebody. What do you suggest if maybe there's a hard boundary you have and the other person's on the same page and then as the years go by, something changes? Like, I can't tell you how many people I've come across where they both didn't want to have kids and then one of them suddenly wants to. It's, I guess, at that point, I guess maybe you need to get a divorce. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because I know we live in a world where keeping a marriage going can be really hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a tricky question, right? Because I think it totally depends on context. And I do know people who were, uh, one person was so like, I want to have kids. I want to have kids. And then decided later on that she didn't want kids. Um, and so I think that it's important to do check-ins on a regular basis with your partner. Like when I say compatibility, it's not just values, it's life vision. And it is, it is okay for someone to change their mind. And this happens, of course, if they were manipulative and trying to trick you and bait and switch, very different story, but it is possible for someone to change their mind, for example, on, on the topic of children at some point. And, and then I think that's when you have to be really honest with yourself and say, okay, do I want family so much that, you know, I'm going to, to end this relationship so I can create that. Or you're like, Hey, you know what? I want a family, but I want this relationship more. And this is what's more important to me. I think you just have to be really honest with yourself and that's going to be different for everyone. But I do caution people in, in not getting stuck in sunk cost fallacy, which is something I see a lot, why people stay in relationships that are not the right fit for them, whether they're toxic relationships or two people that just totally don't fit, um, whether they grew apart or they never fit from the beginning, and they stay in it because of sunk cost fallacy, which is a tendency for people to continue pursuing something because they've invested time, money, energy, or pain. And because human beings, we don't like to waste and we hate to admit failure. We want to justify our investment. We fool ourselves into believing that things will be different. And we mm. get so focused on that past investment rather than present and future value. So if someone is listening and you are caught in a relationship where you feel stuck in and you don't know why, you know it's not the right fit for you, ask yourself, is this a question? Is this sunk cost fallacy? And you've got to realize your past investment is exactly that. And the question to ask yourself is if you were to start over today, would you choose this person again? Right? It's the same thing. If you were to, if you were to start over today, would you choose this job again? Um, and I think that could be a really helpful way of addressing, um, if you're just falling for the psychological tendency or if you're actually making the right choice for yourself. Yeah, really, really crazy. I know so many people who they have confided in me, I wouldn't pick my husband again, and yet they have a couple of kids. Um, do you think that that's workable if that's what's true in their heart? Like this isn't the right person for me and I wouldn't have picked them. Or do you think that's an invitation to say, hey, you're still young, like start over? It's so complicated because there are so many different schools of thought, right? Like I know my parents, they don't believe in divorce. And they stay together for the children. I can't 
changed my mother's values of, no, you have a commitment, you stay forever. And then there's some people, maybe more the millennial generation and younger who are like, no, live your best life. You only live once. They're totally different ways of approaching the world. One is not more right than the other. And so if you are of one of the, the train of thought that you only live once, keep your light bright, you know, do what makes you happy. And that's going to create a positive positive ripple effect on the world and have a positive effect in your children, then go ahead and make those decisions. But if you're like really value commitment and partnership and seeing things through, then that's also not wrong either. Um, of course, if there's abuse of any sort, very different story, but it, it really does depend on, on those values, um, and seeing what, what approach is, is yours. All right. So I know that some people, like in a lot of couples, one person is more motivated than the other in their career, more ambitious perhaps. And then in other couples, they're both super ambitious. There's all sorts of different concoctions of people and um, combinations. But what I'm curious about is just having a supportive partner and what that might look like. So, and, and I was just reading recently in Harvard Business Review, it talked about how two thirds of women who decide to quit the workforce do so because the wives had to fill a so-called parenting need and that 60% of late life divorces are initiated by women and often it's to focus on their career. So just curious for some of your thoughts on two different motivated people and being supported in each other's career. Yeah, I think that it is going to be very dependent on what your definition of support is. And if you fall into a more traditional type of a role where just like how I grew up, I had a mom and dad, very traditional roles where my father worked, he was a breadwinner and she took care of absolutely everything of the household. And for them, that worked for them and they don't believe in divorce. So even if they felt unhappy, they continue to stay together. And that is not right. That's not wrong. It's just that was their value system. And that was the type of role and dynamic that they felt comfortable in. Now, I think today there's so many different shapes and sizes and there isn't one right way. Um, I know for myself, I was very conflicted growing up with a very traditional household, but then being a millennial in the world who wanted to be independent and a fierce feminist. And, and what does that look like? And I think that part of being in a supportive partnership is to have these conversations about what is your relationship with money? What are your expectations? Are your expectations that the man pays for everything or the woman pays for everything? Is this a strict 50, 50 thing? And I think having these conversations earlier on is important because usually your relationship with money and your expectations around money, they generally stay pretty steady unless there's a concerted effort to change them. So if you have one idea of, no, I want the the, the wife to pay for everything, I want to be the stay-at-home dad, and your wife has a completely different mentality or your girlfriend, hopefully you find out before that you're your wife, then there's going to be conflict. Eventually you deal with it now or you deal with it later. So I think having these honest conversations and again, not judging them as good or bad, right or wrong, but what feels right to you. And also re-examining what are your ideas of, of a healthy supportive partnership? Because I know for me, growing up, I thought living the dream meant being taken care of and being a housewife and writing on the side for fun. And that changed drastically when I had a breakup and I realized, wait, I can't, this is not my financial strategy, basing it on someone. And I really changed and evolved my perspective of what type of partnership I wanted. So I think it's important to reassess that and see um, if you're just absorbing relationship models through osmosis from society and upbringing, or is it really yours? Mm, I love this. Is there anything I haven't asked you about love breakups, the phantom X relationships that you feel like would be really valuable for me to make sure that I ask you about? Yeah, this is more of a, a, a an emotional thing. And I spent my entire life 
really torn about love, which is why I dived into becoming a relationship expert. It was one area of my life I couldn't figure out. And I was constantly heartbroken and I thought there was something wrong with me. And um, I always equated that love was hard and there was chaos and there's, you know, push and pull. And now that I'm in a partnership that is healthy and stable, I have a knowing that love is not chaotic and love is peaceful. Love is supportive. It is knowing that your partner has your back and it is not this constant anxiety of questioning. Does this person like me? Does this person not like me? Oh, am I texting too early? Oh, do I, am I coming gosh your too forward? Should I initiate sex? Should I not? It isn't that. And mm-hmm. When you don't know what healthy love is, you might think that the models you've seen or the experiences you've had so far, you might think, oh no, this is the best it's going to get. And Mm -hmm. I work with so many people who stay stuck in these dead end relationships because they think that's the best that they can get. And they say these stories that, well, you can't have everything. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Yeah, you can. And it doesn't mean that there's not going to be conflict and that you're going to have to have tough conversations. And yes, passion's going to go up and it's going to go down. And there's going to be times when you feel turned off by your partner and you're going to have to find a way to have conversations about sex and money and chores. But it's not this constant question mark and this constant chipping away of self-esteem and self-worth. And so if I could leave one message with anyone who's listening, if you are caught in this push and pull of angst about this person that you're dating, then that might be a sign that this is not the right fit for you. And if it's not the right fit for you, it is not a rejection of you as a person and as a human being. It's that it's not your person. And that's okay. Mm. And sometimes we just need to go through these relationships to understand what we don't want so that we can learn what does love not feel like so that we can create space to explore what does healthy love feel like. Mm. Thank you so much for being here. Where can everybody keep learning from you? And where can everybody go get your book? Yeah. So you can learn more about me at renewbreakupbootcamp.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Miss Amy Chan. And my book is called Breakup Bootcamp, The Science of Rewiring Your Heart. You can get that on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore. Um, And I talk about these theories and topics in detail. And I give tools and processes to help you move through some of these patterns that might make you feel stuck in your relationships. Mm, Thank you again for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the U-Turn Podcast. If any of our guests mention any resource that you're interested in, you can head on over to ashleystall.com and press the podcast tab to see any show notes. It's A-S-H-L-E-Y-S-T-A-H-L.com. On that page, you're also going to see our brand new free quiz, helping you discover which career path you're actually meant for. It's followed by tons of content-packed emails about your personality in the work and of course we just can't thank you enough for your written reviews these reviews mean a lot for our show to keep getting out there so if you ever send me a dm on the gram and i'm so grateful that you have i would love it if you would copy and paste that into the podcast app of your smartphone as a written review it would mean so much for us over here at the show thanks again for being here and i can't wait to connect with you next week